With that, anybody just out of curiosity, a professional photographer in the room? Yeah, I knew you were coming this service. <laughs> this question was for you, buddy. So we got a professional photographer. Now, what about a camera aficionado? Anybody got a camera aficionado? And what I mean by a camera aficionado? You're a guy with an awesome little saddlebag for your camera. You got the multiple lenses. You know what shutter speed is, aperture, ISO. There's other words I don't know. How many, how many of those type of people do we have in the room? Mark Wardle, you better raise your hand. I, I'm thinking of you right here. Okay, now for the rest of us, the rest of us who are not, you know, camera sophisticated, who thinks they could operate something like this? This is pretty standard. It's got the point and click function. There's an on off button. You zoom in, you zoom out. If you want to do the fancy stuff, you can, but you don't have to. You just set it to auto. It's great. How many of you could operate this? Okay, good. So a lot of you. Now, clearly, I have just demonstrated I know nothing about cameras other than the point-and-click thing. But this is something I do know. Let's say, for instance, I wanted to take a picture of two people at opposite ends of the room. So let's say I want to get a picture of Bill Woodbury right here, and I'm going to get the Tregos in the far corner. Can you raise your hands, Tregos? There we go. Perfect. I have two options if I want to get a picture of the Tregos and I want to get a picture of the whole Woodbury clan here, right? Two options. The first option is I can zoom in either on the Tragos or on the Woodbury clan here, um, and you know, I'd be able to get all the details and specifics. I'd be able to figure out exactly who's who. But in doing so, I either have to cut out the Tragos or I make them so blurry, right? You're not going to be able to recognize them. So that's one option. A second option, I'll have to go over here, is I can step back and zoom out, right? And I could get well, I'd get almost all of you if I do this. But the problem with this model is everybody's relatively blurry, right? I'm not gonna be able to make out all the details and everybody. We'd probably be able to recognize it's the Trago family, but I doubt we'd be able to recognize their jewelry. I doubt we'd be able to recognize even what they're wearing on their colors. We probably would recognize Lindsay's got some red on. We would have recognized the back of his head. But beyond that, we wouldn't have really known much, right? So those are the options we have if we want to take a picture of two different reference points in, in space and time, okay? The reason this is important, okay, is because in our passage today, in our passage today, we're actually going to see a huge snapshot that Jesus takes of human history. And in this snapshot of human history, he's going to refer to multiple points in history. But in doing so, the picture is gonna remain relatively blurry. We're gonna be able to make out some basic stuff, you know, some general concepts, but we're not gonna have the specifics we desire. And this is gonna frustrate some of you. I know this because when most people read the passages we're gonna to read today, they want to know. And so they take these blurry details and they make Mountains out of molehills, right? They just analyze everything and they try and figure out every little detail. But that's not the point. Instead, what we're going to see when we read these things is we've got to take in the big picture that was intended for us. And this big picture that Jesus communicates to us is not to tell us what's going to happen at the end of the world, okay? There will be details in there, but they're not specifics. His main point for telling us this is to tell us how we are to live in light of what's going to come at us. 
what we're going to see is he's basically telling us we need to hold the line as the charging army comes. He recognizes it's not going to be beautiful, but it's going to be painful, but we can hold the line. So, and this is really the image I get. Um, if you follow our staff devotionals at all, they're on the podcast. Um, every week we post them. We meet here, I don't know, 8.30 every morning, Monday to Friday, Monday, Thursday. Uh, and you're welcome to join us anytime. But those podcasts are actually uploaded to the internet every day. Well, that said, a few weeks ago, maybe a month or two ago, I had this passage that came up as a part of our random devotional. And the image that came to mind as I was reading this was, was perfect for Father's Day, okay? Just perfect. How many of you have ever seen Braveheart? The movie Braveheart, right? And the reason I bring this up is because any men's retreat I have ever gone on has shown Braveheart. I don't know what it is, but men are drawn to this movie, and specifically this scene. There's this one scene where William Wallace, played by Mel Gibson, rides up on his horse, okay? He's got this awesome, long, luscious hair flowing. He's wearing a kilt because he's awesome. He's got this blue face paint, gigantic sword, right? And he's riding up on this horse, and he rides up to this battlefield, and he rides up behind the Scottish army. And in the distance, you, you vaguely make out the, the British army. And the British army, they look professional. They got banners. They got horsemen. You know, they got armor. They got, they look good. And then you get the Scottish army and they're looking like us with pitchforks in their hands. Like, and these guys, these Scottish guys, they're getting freaked out. They're like, oh man, I don't want to stand here. They're going to kill us. This is going to be bad. This is really scary. And so they start breaking the line. They start leaving the battlefield. They start ditching what they're here for. And so you have Wallace ride up on his horse. This is how you ride on a horse. And he rides up on the horse and he goes, guys, I know this is going to be bad. And so he's like riding back and forth. I know this is going to be bad. And I know this isn't going to be beautiful. This is going to be painful. This is going to get tough. But here's the thing. We got no other option. We got to hold the line. You can't run. You can't give in. You can't like phone it in. You got to hold the line and stand here. The difference between the Wallace analogy and the analogy that Jesus is giving us is Jesus doesn't just say, I want you to hold the line. Jesus tells us what's going to happen afterwards. And as we read this, we're going to be confronted with the reality that Jesus is going to go, hey, it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be painful. And I recognize it's going to be scary and overwhelming. But know this, know this. God has not forgotten you. God is still in absolute control. And three, in the end, God wins. Your job is to hold the line until that happens. And that's what we're going to wrestle with today. What does that look like? So with that, we are in... Um, we're actually in the last chapter of Mark for us today. If you remember, we skipped um, Mark 14 to 16. We actually did that during Holy Week. Um, and so this is going to be our last chapter in Mark. Pastor Chris will finish it up next week. Um, but we're in Mark 13. Just to kind of catch you up in the book where we're at, this is the part where Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple. We've spent the last, like, I think five or six weeks wrestling with or, or chewing on what Jesus taught in the passage or in the, in the temple. And what we see is every major religious and political leader comes up to Jesus with a question and they try to stump him. And every single time Jesus gives this incredibly simple and yet brilliant response that leaves the guys dumbfounded. 
Now the disciples and Jesus are on their way out of the temple and they're just in awe of the temple. Okay, and Jesus goes, yeah, guys, it's pretty nice, but listen up, it's gonna be rubble soon. It's, it's going down. And then they kind of are like, what? <laughs> and so then Jesus gives them a glimpse into the future and a glimpse into here's the events that will happen until I return again, until I come back for you. So we are in Mark chapter 13. We're going to read verses 1 to 23 today. Um, it's page 710 on your pew Bibles. Here's the thing with this passage. Uh, we're going to, I know this is a passage most people either obligatorily read through or skip. Okay? It's hard. It's a little overwhelming at times. But you're going to realize today, we can all read this. It's just, you know, we got to do a little more thinking and chewing on it. But here's the thing. In passages like this, in passages like, like this one or, or Revelation or Daniel, the key to the book is the commands. The key to reading Revelation, Daniel, or, or, or these chapters in um, Mark or, or the other Gospels is what does Jesus say to do in light of it? Because like Wallace, he's going to say, he's going to paint a very broad picture of what's going to come, but he's going to tell you what you need to do to hold the line. So I want to encourage you today, and some of your Bibles probably have this because the first service did this. I want you to underline. I want you to circle. I want you to highlight whatever you find best, the command statements as I read. So that when you go back and read this passage later, you'll be like, oh yeah, that's the key. And you'll figure out that's how we read this section, okay? Mark 13, verses 1 to 23. Um, feel free to mark up the pew Bibles. It's absolutely fine. Just grab the pens. Circle, highlight, underline, whatever you need to do to follow along. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Hey, look, teacher, look, massive stones. What magnificent buildings. Do you see all of these great buildings? Replied Jesus, which is a funny question since they just pointed them out. Um, not one stone here will be left on another. Every single one of them will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew approached him and asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. By the way, that's like the most sovereign statement in the entire thing. All of these are under God's control. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. You must be on your guard, for you will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at that time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit within you. That's a cool promise. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. 
When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand this. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one go back to the, or no one in the field go back and get their cloak. For how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be the days of distress unequaled from the beginning of time when God created the world until now and never will they be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, hey, look over there, there's the Messiah, or look, there he is, don't believe him. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect, you and me. So be on your guard, for I have told you everything ahead of time. This is the word of the Lord. So pretty odd passage, but let's just go back to the setting here. Verses one to four, right? The, the disciples were leaving the temple with Jesus, and they're totally caught up in the beauty of this building. And rightly so. The descriptions we have of the first century temple make this place sound awesome. They put the Disneyland castle to shame, okay? The, the walls apparently on the temple were massive white marble stones with the tops covered in gold. And it was situated on a hill and for miles people could see this. There were intricate carvings, intricate statues. And so you can imagine as they're walking through, they're just in awe of this place, just like we're in awe of Disneyland, but they're in awe of this. And they're like, whoa, look at that, look at that, look at that. And they nudge Jesus at some point, and they go, hey, Jesus, look at this. This is so cool. And he goes, yeah, but guys, listen to me. You see all these buildings? Not one of them, not one building, not one single stone on which they lay will be left. Every one of them will be thrown down. This whole place is going to be rubble, ashes. When the disciples hear this, their ears are perked up. Because here's the thing, they immediately recognize the language Jesus is using about not one stone will be left on another. That's the same language God uses in the Old Testament when he talks about judging cities. Jesus is saying Jerusalem's going to be judged. And the disciples are like, whoa, we know what happens when God judges a city. This isn't going to be bad. This is going to be bad. So they go and they ask Jesus, you know, I imagine at lunch at some point, and they're sitting across the way looking at this and they go, okay, just give us some more here. What, when is this gonna happen? What's it gonna look like? I think embedded in their question is this assumption that they have, and frankly, it's one that we all have. It's this idea that somehow, if they could just know a little more about it, if they could just have all the facts and all the details, they would somehow lessen the blow of the judgment. It wouldn't be as crushing to them, right? They would know it's coming. It's like knowing the diagnosis and what's going to happen to you. And they thought, you know what, it's just going to, that would be better, Jesus. Just let us know everything that's coming on. We're, we'll have this under our control. They thought somehow if they had this knowledge, they would be above it. They would be superior to it. They would domesticate it right? It wouldn't be as powerful. It wouldn't be as strange. It wouldn't be as awkward. It wouldn't be as scary. 
And I think these are the exact same things we have when we read Revelation, when we read the book of Daniel, when we skim the minor prophets. It's confusing, it's a little intriguing, but most of all, it freaks us out. And so we have one of two approaches that we typically take, and I'll show you which one I usually do. The first one is we put on our very best ostrich costume and we shove our head into the ground and we pretend, no, don't tell me, I don't wanna hear about it, I don't wanna read it, right? I don't wanna talk about the end times, I don't wanna know anything about it. And so we skip Daniel. We skip Revelation or we obligatorily read it. Like, oh, I gotta get through it because it's on my Bible reading plan. But it's miserable to do so. And we never take the time to really chew on it. That's one approach. The second approach is the complete opposite side. And you've probably seen books on this stuff, right? Where people become so hyper fixated on all the blurry details that they develop these complex strings of eschatology, these complex strings of what's going to happen in the end times, right? And so they write books on it and they're like, oh, the blood moons are coming, right? This is the new one right now because every six months we're going to have a blood moon. The blood moons are coming. Oh, God is judging us. Get out, run for the hills. And they start scrambling or they develop these books and, or, or RFID chips. They're being developed and implanted in our hands. That's the mark of the beast. And people do these weird stuff where they become, they develop these crazy theories. And here's the thing. People have been doing this for thousands of years. And guess what? They're all wrong. As far as I understand it, this is not the end yet. Could happen right now. Could happen tomorrow. But Jesus has not returned yet. And so those are the two approaches people typically take when they approach books like Revelation and Daniel and all these ones. And they either stick their head in the ground, they ignore it, or they become so fixated on the details. But here's the thing. When we read what Jesus does here in this little, little apocalypse that he gives us, you're gonna recognize that's not the point. Neither approach is appropriate. The way we're supposed to approach apocalyptic literature and the way we're supposed to approach Daniel, Revelation, all those ones, is we're supposed to do it with sober judgment, okay? We're supposed to go in recognizing, you know what, we're gonna get some blurry details and that's okay. That's okay, we're not gonna know everything. We're not gonna know exactly who it is, what it is, when it is. But what we are gonna see is we're gonna see how are we supposed to live in light of this. And more importantly, we're gonna recognize that passages like this, passages in Revelation, I mean, they're beautiful passages that are meant to give us hope, that are meant to encourage us to remain faithful, to hold the line because God has not forgotten us. God is still in control and God wins in the end. That's how we approach these other books. So today, what I wanna do with you is we're just gonna kinda of walk through the passages, okay? What you're gonna see is this. Jesus is gonna talk about different institutions people often put their faith in. Different institutions, be it your family, your wealth, your job, your country, your possessions, whatever it is. And he's gonna talk about every single one of those institutions will fail you on some level. The only thing you can put your faith in is me. Me and me alone. All the other ones will let you down and you cannot compromise your faith and have me and something else. It's me or nothing. The other things aren't bad, but they will let you down. I'm your foundation. 
Cling to the truths of my word. That's what we're going to see. So as we go through this, as we go through this, if you have not circle highlighted or underlined, do it as we go. Okay? Do it as you go. And we're just going to read the first uh, nine verses here. Verse five, here we go. Jesus said to them, watch out. Here you go, that's your first word. Watch out, the command, that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines. For these are the beginnings of birth pains. Many people will come. I think what this is talking about, and, and this makes a lot of sense to me, is different people are going to continue to try and tempt you to follow them over Christ. Different people are going to come and say, hey, I'll be your savior. Put your trust in me. I will take care of you. This could be a political figure, right? I will save America. I will save the world. I will do this. This could be a religious guy. This could be a pastor. Oh, I'll tell you how to get to heaven. Just follow my ways. Listen to me. Ignore this. Listen to me. Different people are going to show up. This could also be our families that distract us so much away from the gospel. We dump everything into our kids, everything into our spouse that we totally ignore Jesus. And he's saying, watch out for those things. They're not necessarily bad. They're not, politicians aren't bad, religious leaders aren't bad, your family's far from bad. But watch out, where are you putting your trust? And then there will be wars and rumors of wars and things like this. This is getting at the political crisis. If you are continuing to bank all of your hopes on America, you're screwed. I'm sorry if that's offensive, I realized it after I said it. <laughs> you are, because every country will spiral out of control. Every country will fail on some level. Every political party will let you down. Just look around us, wars, rumors of wars, they're going on all over. Just turn on the news. Are we going back to Iraq? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's all in the air. Wars, rumors of wars, it will continue to spiral. These are the beginnings of birth pains. It's like we're, when Jesus died, we entered labor. And this is one heck of a labor. <laughs> 2,000 years going, we're still getting contractions. We're still seeing them repeat over and over and over. Here's the core to the book, or to the passage. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. For the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit within you. Brother will betray brother to death. And a father his children. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. What these passages are getting at is this simple principle. If you stand with Christ, you stand against the world. You stand in opposition 
to the world. If you stand in opposition to the world, you will suffer at the hands of the world just as Christ did. If you stand with Christ, you will suffer with Christ. This is a truth all throughout Scripture. If you stand with Christ, you will suffer with Christ. If you stand for Christian values, if you stand for Jesus in the workplace, if you stand and have these conversations with your family, your friends, your softball team, your neighbors, whatever, at some level, you're going to offend someone. Because their views, their worldview is completely opposite of yours. And frankly, this is highly offensive. Highly offensive to somebody. The gospel is an offensive message. And so nobody likes to be told they're not in control. That there's some higher power above them. Nobody likes that. It will offend someone, and at some point, if you haven't gotten it yet, you will be called ignorant, you will be called stupid, you will be called misguided, you'll be judgmental. I think those are all the words I've been called. Maybe more. At home, no. <laughs> I'm sorry, babe. <laughs> I am in trouble now. <laughs> the truth is, though, this other part about families betraying each other, do you realize this isn't hyperbolic language? That in the world today as we speak, this stuff happens. It makes the news every now and then. A guy who was turned over by his family because they were so afraid of you know, being found out that, and they didn't want their whole family killed, so they betrayed the dad. They betrayed the kids for coming to Christ. This isn't hyperbolic. We hear about it in our news, like NPC. And so if our news picks up on it every now and then, just imagine how frequently this actually takes place. It may not be every day, but it absolutely takes place for our brothers and sisters around the world. Now, also, we are very fortunate. We are very fortunate to live in a country right now where we don't necessarily face intense persecution. We, we don't, right? We live in a country that's, that respects our rights, that protects them, these kind of things. But here's the thing, and I already made mention of this. Why do we expect that of all the countries in all of history, of all the empires to ever exist, that America is somehow so different than everyone else? That America will not decline. That America, we're so surprised when America throws out its Christian values that it was founded on. That America passes laws that are clearly against Scripture. Why are we surprised by this? He told us. He told us that if we stand with him, we suffer with him. If we stand with him, we stand in opposition to the world. He told us it was going to happen. Look at verse 13. Everyone will hate you because of me. Verse 9. You will be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogue. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen, and this is the beginning of my rant, and I will put my soapbox away later. Here's my rant. Your job, our job, it's not a you or me thing. This is our job as Christians is not to be so fixated on the decline of Christianity in America. Our job is not to be the whiners, the complainers, the arguers, the, the hate fear mongerers that too often we are. 
That's not our role. Jesus told us, told us this was going to happen. Stop acting surprised. Stop acting surprised that we don't have prayer in our classrooms. Stop acting surprised that, you know, the government allows satanic statues next to Christian statues. Stop being surprised. Stop being surprised when you find out, oh, Ten Commandments aren't allowed in our buildings anymore. Or that America is somehow not the same as Christianity. That America is pro-abortion. That America is totally cool with gay marriage. Don't act surprised. He told you it was going to happen. And yet Christians, we, we do this so often, we act so, oh my gosh, I didn't see this coming, how horrible. Terrible things are happening. Oh, the world is ending, it's awful. And we're fear-mongerers. We spread the complaining and the whining around more than almost anybody else. Woe is us. That is not our job. That is not our job. Our job is to stand before kings and governors, all people, so that the gospel may be preached to all nations. Our job is to be the beacon of hope in this world, not the beacon of fear. Our job is to share the gospel at all costs. So practically, let's just get real practical here. Real practical, and yes, practical and ideal may be contradictory terms, but I know I've got an idealistic vision here. But here's the thing. Do you know that 1.2-something million abortions occur in America every year? 1.2 million abortions. If you've had an abortion, I want to be very clear on this. I'm not bashing you at all. I hope you hear me in this, and I hope my words are steeped with grace. But it breaks my heart to hear that 1.2 million children have been aborted. What breaks my heart even more is the way the Christian community has treated the abortion community. We are known for our bashing. We are known for our complaining. We spend so much money fighting Roe v. Wade. We spend so much money picketing and time picketing abortion clinics. What has that gotten us? It seems foolhardy to me. We continue to do the same things over and over and expect different results. Stupid. Insane. So what would a practical way, what would it look like to bring hope to the abortion community? Again, here's my idealistic vision. Right now, it's pretty much understandable that it's seen by America as a selfless act on some level, maybe selfish, so somewhat, to have an abortion because, you know, you don't want to have to have that child be raised. I don't, you know, I'm really terrible at articulating the other side. I apologize for that today. But it's seen for the most part as selfless. Imagine, though, if the church, imagine if the church stepped up and offered to adopt every single child instead of allowing them to be aborted. There's a statistic out there that's really fascinating that if one family, one family out of every three churches in America adopted a child, just one family out of every three churches, if one family did this, there would be no need for a foster care system in America. That's crazy. That's crazy. 
Imagine if the churches started to take all their time, resources, and energy that they take into picketing and bashing the other side and said, we're going to put that into our budgets as a byline. And so families, if you come to us and you say, hey, we want to adopt, we want to help you as a church. We'll help you with the legal fees. We'll help you with all the other stuff that you have to do. Or, you know what, we can't help you on that, but we'll help you with babysitting. We'll help you with diaper care. You know what, I've got a great counselor because I know non-biological children is going to cause a lot of problems here sometimes. We'll help you. You're willing to do it. We're willing to partner with you. Imagine how that would change the conversation in America. Just on this subject, if instead of fear-mongering, if instead of bashing, if instead of whining and complaining, we brought hope to this one situation. Imagine how that would change everything. Hope is what the world needs to hear from us. The gospel, that in our brokenness, that in this screwed up world we live in, God has not given up on us. God is still in control. And in the end, God wins. Our job is to hold the line until he returns. Our job is to reflect him to others, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love him, to love ourselves. That is our job. He will do the rest. Just imagine if we shared that message over all the other ones. Now I take my soapbox and set it over there. I know it's idealistic, but man, is that, that's more hopeful to me than what we're doing right now. That's the gospel. All right. The second section here, verses 14 to 23, I'm just going to summarize them really quick. Um, if you remember at the beginning of the sermon, I told you Jesus is going to take a snapshot of history where he refers to multiple points in history, okay? And he does so very vaguely. But one of the vague things he uses is this phrase, the abomination that causes desolation. Really awesome title. I mean, if I start playing video games again, I'm going to use that as my, like, name. The abomination that causes desolation. Like, you'd fear me. That title... That title is actually a phrase that comes out of Daniel, Prophecies of Daniel. Jesus is reaching back about 500 years. The majority of people in Jesus' day, and even still today, scholars would agree to this, the abomination was at least in some way, shape, or form partially fulfilled around the year 167 B.C. What happened in that year is this evil Greek emperor rode into town. He stormed the temple. He erected a statue of Zeus in the temple and he slaughtered a pig on the altar, and he forced Jews to eat um, pork. That's pretty bad, especially if you're a Jew. That's like the most offensive you can get. So Jews of Jesus' day all recognized Daniel was talking about that event. Jesus is now saying those two events, Daniel's prophecy and the event in 167, those were only a foretaste of what's to come. They only foreshadowed it. And so what, what Jesus talks about in this prophecy, when he talks about the abomination that causes desolation, is he talks about this time where when you see it set up, when you see the abomination come to life, get out of town. Daniel's use, by the way, of the abomination that causes desolation, it simply refers to a person or an object that defiles and persecutes the Jews. So Jesus is saying, if you see this person or object, run, run for the hills. Ditch everything, drop it, get out of there. Don't cling to it. 
And what's interesting, and this I find fascinating, church historian named Eusebius in the early, early days of the church, like late 200s, early 300s, he told us of an event in Jerusalem where the disciples, the, the, the Jewish Christians of Jesus, of, of around the time of the destruction of the temple had this prophecy kicking around. They likely didn't have Mark's gospel, but they had the teachings of Jesus that they talked about orally together when they met in church. And one was this prophecy, that when you see the abomination coming, get out of town. And what they recognized was during, in the temple around this time, about 168 BC or AD, um, or excuse, 68 um, AD, um, that the Jewish people, some of them started to do really wicked things in the temple. They started to murder each other. They started to rob. It was, it was bloody. It was bad. And they're like, that is not good. That's defiling the temple. And then they started to recognize, uh-oh, here comes the Roman army. Okay, if Jesus is saying, when you see the abomination, that means God's judgment is coming. These Christians dropped everything and got out of town as fast as they could, ran to the hills and they were protected while Rome came in and destroyed the temple, destroyed all of Jerusalem, leveled it, totally leveled it. So what's the significance of this? It's a good question. Here's the thing, and you kind of have to think a little more about this one. The significance of this is this. For a Jewish person, the temple was everything. It was the center of life. It was the center of their culture. It was what defined them ethnically. It was everything. And it's why in the Jewish war, the battle for Jerusalem was so horrific. The Jews fought valiantly against the Romans. Bloody massacres, streets covered in blood, we're told, inches deep in blood. Disgusting. The Jews fought so hard for the temple, but not the Christian Jews. The Jewish Christians, having this passage, recognized they could only put their faith in Jesus. And therefore, Jesus said, get out of town. They trusted Jesus. They didn't put their faith in Jesus and the temple. They didn't put their faith in Jesus and their possessions. They didn't put their faith in Jesus and their job. They ditched and left all of those institutions and took to the hills. Nothing was more important than Jesus for them. And because of that, they were saved. What we have to wrestle with is what is our temple? We just saw that different things will let us down, right? Families will betray us, jobs, nations, temples, church buildings. Everything will fail us on some level. Our responsibility, our responsibility is to hold the line. Our responsibility is in the midst of this chaos that's coming at us to hold the line, to remain faithful to Christ, to trust that God has not given up on us, that God has not forgotten us, and that God is still in absolute control. Here's the thing. All these prophecies I've already talked about, we may not fully experience here in America. And thankfully, or thank God for that. I don't know that I would like it very much. But our brothers and sisters around the world are facing this daily. Just think about the news. Just turn it on. You got, you got the Nigerian schoolgirls forced to, to become Muslims. And now you got this new ISIS movement, right? Running into Iraq and taking over all the cities that we had and forcing Sharia law, both in Syria and in Iraq. Our brothers and sisters, Christian brothers and sisters, are facing severe persecution as we speak. 
the only thing that gives them hope is passages like this. The fact that they can know that God has not forgotten them. The fact that they can know that God, despite whatever it may seem, is still in control. And that in the end, as long as they continue to hold the line, God wins. Their job is to share the gospel with everyone they come into contact with. To share the hope of Christ, to be a beacon of light in their communities. That said, many of us, many of us still face very difficult situations that absolutely tempt us to walk away from our faith, to throw in the towel or to compromise it, put our faith in Jesus and something else. For instance, you called into your boss's office and he goes, hey, you're done. We're letting you go. Get out of here. And you're like, wait, I, I got a mortgage to pay. I got all these different things. Or you get the eviction notice. Or worse, you're sitting in a hospital room across from your child as they suffer. And you wonder, what the heck is going on, God? What are you doing? Your kid runs away from home. Your wife hands you the divorce papers. The stock market absolutely crashes. You lose everything. These are all situations people face on a regular basis that cause them to doubt the goodness and faithfulness of God. These are all situations that many of you I know have faced, are facing. What does it look like to hold the line? First, I'm going to put the obligation on the rest of us that are not in those circumstances right now. One, when you're in those circumstances, it's like you got blinders on. You can't, you just can't see anything. You may know God is good. You need somebody to help you. Encourage your heart. This is where we have to share the gospel repeatedly, even to one another. Hey man, God's in control. God's got this. Press into the promises of scripture. Cling to him. But for the rest of us, for the rest of us, we cannot allow Satan to convince us. We cannot allow the world's, the fear of oppression from the world to prevent us from doing the one thing Jesus wants us to do, to be the beacon of hope in this world, to share the gospel at all costs. Because here's the thing, you may not realize this. I know some of us think, oh, you know, work's here, church's here, family's here, and the two shall, or the three shall never meet. But here's the thing, you have coworkers who are putting all of their trust in different institutions, be it their wealth, their family, their jobs, whatever. And at some point, on some level, the, the floor will drop out. You have to. On, you have to be the beacon of hope in there because nobody else will. You are the one who can point them to God. You are the one who can remind them and hear me on this. And I want you to agree, if you do, at the end, that God is still in control. That God has not forgotten them. That in the end, God wins. All we have to do is hold the line and wait for him. Amen? I feel like you're all going to agree with me as I say this, but can we just admit, come, Lord Jesus, come. <laughs>